we are live from the empire of lies and just outside the matrix. It's time for the show that brings you the truth behind the headlines. I'm Lee Stranahan, and this is Backstory. I pointed this out on Twitter, but we've been censored. YouTube gave us a removal notice content. They removed a couple of our shows. The FCC, you can, these were broadcasts over the airwaves. So you could do that, but we don't meet the high standards of YouTube. So they removed us. As we were talking about yesterday with Carter Laren, when they do this, they don't tell you. We do a two-hour show. They don't clue us in on what the content that they removed us for. They make the wrong transgender athletic joke. Was it something we said about Ukraine? We don't know. They just pulled down the entire show. So that's something that's going on. But we're doing a show live today. We'll see how this goes in terms of it. What we're urging you to do is tell your friends, tell your neighbors, listen to it now before it gets censored, because it almost certainly will. So that's what I'm saying. Hey, Rod, how you doing? I'm doing well, Lee. Doing well. How about yourself? Besides besides the censorship going on. Well, aside from that, I'm okay. Uh, but you put together a great show for us. We'll be talking to Mark Akorian from the Center for Immigration Studies. The Center for Immigration Studies is the leading anti-immigration, illegal immigration. They're not anti-immigration. They're anti-illegal immigration. Pro-lawful immigration. Think tank in America. Mark Kikorian from the Center for Immigration Studies will be joining us in the first hour. In the second hour, we had journalist Taylor Hudak, who's been a fierce advocate covering the Assange story. She's been fantastic covering that. And she's got another story we're talking about, about censorship. It relates. That's in the second hour. And we'll take your calls. All throughout the show, 202-521-1320. This is the backstory. So, Rod, I suppose you heard the biggest news in media this week. Uh, Breaking news. Will Smith banned from the Oscars for 10 years. Now, Rod, you... You subscribe to news alerts, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so yes. you, you know what I'm saying. It's the biggest story in the media. My phone blew up like no story. When, when literally, when yesterday we had a woman vote to the Supreme Court, I did not get as many news alerts. But the Will Smith story literally... My phone was vibrating off the hook, and that's hard because it's a cell phone. It doesn't vibrate that hard. Did you notice that, too, that this Will Smith story is the biggest story ever? Yeah, I was actually at the park with my kids, and uh, as I looked down on my phone, I have an alert from every, you know, Washington Post, Associated Press, you name it. And as soon as I scroll down, I see Will Smith. To come down in each one of the headlines. I was just like, wow, this is just the stupidest, stupidest thing in the news right now. I mean, 
how does how does this affect America? What does this do for America? So that's the reason I laugh. It's just so stupid that this is what they're focusing on. But it's easy to understand. Everybody can understand the fresh prince from Bel Air slapping someone. And and that's easy. And there's conspiracy theories about it and everything. It is a ridiculous story. Now him being banned for ten years, I should point out that it's from Academy events. It's not strictly from the Oscar award ceremony. He did not just get banned from the award ceremony. He got banned from all Academy events. And that does include a lot of what they call Academy screenings throughout the year. That's where they show the films that you can get that are going to be nominated or they're trying to be nominated. So there's more of those events throughout the year. I've been to Academy screenings. It's a good way to see a movie free. And that's what else he's going to be banned from. But I assume Will Smith can afford to catch a movie. He can afford to pay for it, even on a rental basis. So that's what he's been banned from. But you're right. It's, it's a ridiculous story. Now, slightly less, less ridiculous, the Biden administration, I'm continuing to see Joe Biden make statements about this Buka thing. And I'm continuing to see people act as though, am I right? It's still no one's independently confirmed what Ukrainians allege. Have, have I missed it? No, as of the last hour that I saw, I know that uh, I looked on CNN, they said there's 164 bodies. So, I, I mean, they might, they might be tallying a number of, of bodies, but there's still no evidence of who's guilty of it. Now, by the way, 164 bodies, that number's fluctuating. Uh, when it first started, they were saying 40 bodies. Then it jumped magically to 400. And now it's back to 164. Yeah, I remember, now, I remember, that, I remember that 400 number, which, was, which would be like very mad. I mean, 164 is still a lot, but 400 is like a, you know. That that's even more. We're talking about we're talking about uh, dead civilians here. So, but yeah, I heard that four hundred number early on. And and what I'm saying is, when they can't, th there's no independent corroboration of this. And this is a regime, the Ukrainian regime, that has repeatedly lied, blatantly lied, about their claims, and that we know for a fact has killed civilians because they posted videos themselves. See, a lot of this is admitted to by the Ukrainian regime. The Ukrainian regime has said that if people, they posted videos and they said if people were wearing the white armbands, they deserve to be shot, right? You've seen that video, right? Yeah, I did see that, and that you know that explained what the white bands before because when the when the first story was coming out, they were saying there was people with white armbands, and uh, it was conflating. It was getting from both sides. You were getting conflated with what what it meant, but it's clear now. And you could see the white armbands in the videos, the initial ones that came out. You could see them. 
And so the obvious conclusion is that people who are Russian sympathizers, people who support Russia in Ukraine, aren't very popular with the Nazis that are doing military policing over there, and that they shot them. That would make sense. That's logical. Did you see the doctors talking about how they were ordering the castration of Russian soldiers? Did you see that one? Yeah, we 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 talked about it uh, when you when you were out, and yeah, that was that was crazy. And then he came out the next well, not even the next day, with I guess within less than twelve hours, he came out and he was clearing up his statement that he was just uh, he was just emotional. But you don't you don't say that that you know that. Russians aren't humans and they should be castrated. You know, that's, I think that's your uh, initial or your, that's your deep down. That's exactly how you feel. So now he's just trying to cover it up. Right. And we know that they've been kneecapped. They've been tortured on film. I've not heard, I want to see one Western politician point out the obvious admitted torture by Ukrainians. That there's a dozen, you know, I, I won't even say a dozen, numerous, because it's more than a dozen. How many footage have you seen, clips have you seen, where the Ukrainians were torturing or killing civilians or Russian soldiers? How many are there? Uh, it's well, I've seen, hard to I've count. Seen, yeah, no, it's hard to count, but I've seen through Telegram through uh, Twitter and other other places. So I've seen a lot, maybe about about 50, I would say, around there. I mean, I'd some, I don't try to see as much because then you get a little confused of what's going on because it gets a little conflating, but I've seen about 50, you know. Yeah, that sounds about right to me. And again, it's uh, where are the politicians or anybody calling out that? Where are the politicians anywhere in the world for saying, you know who I did see, there's a good clip from the European uh, Parliament. Did you see the Irish woman? I can't remember her name, but she's outspoken. Claire, da- Claire Daly, I believe is her name. Yes. Did you see Claire Daly? Did you see her making a speech on the floor of the European Parliament and a guy listening, I think a Ukrainian official, like rolling his eyes, eventually got up and left. Yeah, yeah, I saw that. And, uh, you know, she's 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 always on the right side of history. As far as, as, far as I've known her for the past, uh, I guess, two years, known about her for the past two years. And, yeah, that was yeah. just that was just crazy for that guy to, to storm and, out like that. And that's the thing. I would have put this normally at this point. I'd say roll the clip and we roll the clip. But I didn't submit that as a clip. And the reason why is the best part of that clip is out there. You can find it. Is that guy's reaction. Do you agree? Her speech was good, but the guy's reaction was priceless. Yeah, that was that was the best part of it. I mean, not not in, in a good way, but in a way that he just he couldn't take it anymore. And he just got out of there. Yeah, no. And literally throughout throughout the clip, he is very frustrated, rolling his eyes putting his head in his hands and he just couldn't handle it. And she's talking on and her speech is great, but 
without seeing, and he was, you know, sadly for us, I wish he was screaming in agony because he should have been. But that would have given him a, a good audio clip. But we're a radio show, and therefore you have to see this guy throwing a hissy fit. Is Do you think that's the definition of hissy fit, Rob? Yeah, no, I, I would I would say that. I, I would say he was just embarrassed. He was just so embarrassed that he was getting called out like that. Uh, and then what's going on over there? He just couldn't take it. Couldn't take the heat, so he just got to get out of there. Yeah, it was very funny. Let's go to calls two zero two five two one thirteen twenty. Millie from Texas, what is on your mind? Hey guys, I had contacted my rep. I let him know that I'm watching these full videos of Ukrainians dragging bodies through the street with a rope. Um, I've addressed the fact that William Browder seems to be in charge of our U.S. sanctions department, yet he's not American and renounces U.S. citizenship. And I'm just flabbergasted because the response was that they're completely backing up uh, Browder and his sanctions. I made it clear that he's not an American, that he renounced his citizenship. And I even pointed out where he was caught money laundering in April of 2016 through the Panama or the Paradise Papers. One of the two. Yes. Um, yes. Lucy Commissar covered that. And uh, it was very clear to me that this man was willing to do anything to avoid his own persecution of, or his own prosecution of his crimes. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm willing to go over all the documentation showing how he's money laundered and that he was caught. Uh, and I'm just I'm shocked that, uh, you know, especially our representative, who's a minority, that would I'd made it clear. I said we are backing Ukrainian Nazis. I'm watching the videos. I'm watching them being dragged, these people being dragged through the streets on a rope, which has no explanation whatsoever. I don't care what kind of war crime it is. If you see a body being dragged through the street with a rope, there's something to be answered there as far as military is concerned. No, exactly. And and now you're I know you're family of Lucy Commissar. You mentioned her. Uh, you you heard this. I'm sure the segment when Lucy Commissar on this show a couple of days ago, right? No, I missed that. I, I've got to catch up. I've got a, a bunch of stuff going on here. Okay, it was it was Prime Commissar. It was a fantastic appearance. And I wanted to ask her something, but I couldn't because she was saying so much brilliant stuff, I just let her go. It was mostly her talking, which is good throughout the segment. But, and so seriously, as a Commissar fan, as that fair to say, as a Commissar fan, I really suggest you go back and listen to that show. She was great. But I will ask you, you will be a Commissar proxy. I didn't ask her something that I want to, but she was saying so much great stuff that I just let her go. Uh, so imagine yourself in the position of Vladimir Putin or someone in the Russian government who's paying attention. What would it tell you about the U.S. justice system if you'd seen the Browder story roll out for the past few years? In other words, uh, on one hand, you hear a lot of talk about how great our country is and rule of law and so on and so forth. But then... What have you witnessed with the Browder story and the prosecutions of people like Natalia Veselinskaya, the 
the Russian lawyer who was at her Trump Tower meeting. Natalia Veselinskaya did nothing wrong. Yet, here she is, a Russian citizen who's been indicted by the Southern District of New York and can't even get back in the country because she faced prosecution. She faced arrest if she came into the country. What do you think the Browder story tells anyone who's watching about the American justice system? Millie. Um, I think the, the U.S.-Russia MLAT treaty was violated by Preet Bharara. I'm not sure if I'm saying his right name. Uh, he's in Bharara, yeah. Okay, he was in charge of the SCNY. And from what I understand, the, the beginning of this crime was him avoiding MLAT and deciding to change the translation of some of these words um, intentionally so that it would fit his crime, uh, I'm sorry, his case, his Prevazon case for Browder. So if you look at the MLAT um, prosecution and everything that was going through through MLAT with Jamie Nowaday, who which was Preet Bharara's assistant, she did make it clear on MSNBC that they bypassed MLAT and got the judge to approve of documents that were photocopied. Um, if you looked at the original documents, though, I mean, especially when you come to Browner's number one lie is that Magnitsky was a lawyer, yet you look at the translation of lawyer and jurisprudence to practice law in Russian, and there is nowhere to be found any of the documents showing that Magnitsky was ever a lawyer or he had um, the certification for uh, jurisprudence to practice law. So they, they bypassed the reality of what was going on and created their own case to fit the narrative for Browder, um, the original sin would be the actual MLAT and the uh, ignorance of that. And I did watch the Helsinki Forum and the interview of Putin um, where he said that he avoided, that basically that whole process was being avoided and that they were able to fudge a lot of the information the way that they saw fit. Um, so looking at Lucy and the amount of work that she's put into Browder's um, investigations, she could she could present it to anyone. But if if you cannot understand Russian and translation to English, the crime is actually in the translations of this. Yes, but I I think that it's a great point. However, some of the stuff is easy. It's not you don't need to be able to read any Russian at all. If you listen to, I think one of the most shocking things I think you agree with me is Todd Hyman, who is the investigator from Homeland Security, admitting that his investigation, he had one person he talked to, Bill Browder. The first person making the accusations was his sole witness, right? Just on the face of it. Yes, correct. It was Todd Hammond that, lied, that basically lied on uh, Bill Browder's behalf, and he said that he got all the documents straight from Browder and no one else. Where is Todd Hyman now? I can't find him. So, you know, if we got clarification. And he's a big guy. So if he's hiding somewhere, he's, he's kind of hard to hide. Because he is, he's, I'm saying he's heavy, heavy he's, he's half, he's chunky. You know what I'm saying, Millie. Right. But I've even talked to my congressman about Robert Otto and that everybody ignored these emails that were hacked. And it gave the back script on how Browder and Robert Otto and Kyle Parker had basically photographed um, that's on this guy's house before she even got the visa approval to come here. And that was going to the State Department and everybody approved of it to trap her. 
so the way I see it is Bessel Nuskaya came here to warn us about a criminal that was about to take over the globe with U.S. sanctions wars. So it's it's very particular to you know pay attention to the, the, the very big details of this to see that she was warning us and that she had no business in the U.S. except to uh, be the opposing counsel for Browder. She had no business even mentioning Browder to anyone except to warn us. Uh, if we wanted to ignore it, that's, you know, that's a shame. Now, the other big thing I think the, the Browder case shows, what do you think the Browder case says about the media in the country? You can look at nothing else but the Browder case. And what do you learn about the U.S. media? I learned that there is integrity initiative, and that is paid with our U.S. aid, and that is a partnership with Institute of Statecraft, and that our tax dollars and U.K. tax dollars are paid for state propaganda. And the specific script is Browder's, which is an anti-Russia campaign on his behalf, and he's writing the script. So I keep warning everyone about the steel dossier that it's it's his attorney, Jonathan Weiner, that was the original handler of the Steele dossier and a longtime friend of, um, you know, the Steele dossier handlers, uh, that he was the one that originally kind of did a roundabout with Victoria Newland, pretending that she was sending this document when they knew that it was circling on their behalf. And Weiner, with his APCO, APCO background, um, that was a little trickier with Pierre Omidar, considering that he's kind of running this um, Integrity Initiative script, and it's, it's a press propaganda tool, and, and they intentionally avoid certain details because they're not allowed to talk about them. Kind of like Kendallanian, he was busted by um, Lucy Commissar, but there was others that, that Lucy addressed, uh, like, um, I can't remember the guy's name from CNN, they call him Egghead. <laughs> I'm sorry, but I can't remember his name, but she, she addressed it with him, and she, she let him know that Ken had gotten the emails um, saying that he knew that Browder was a liar, but they went ahead and went along with the propaganda. And this is Robert Otto. He's in our State Department. And he's not a small figure by any means. Yeah, and the Otto, the Otto stuff is is stunning because Otto's saying he doesn't trust Browder. You know, he's, he's openly questioning the Browder narrative. But as you say, where is he? I. So I think on a similar level, what the media shows is just as they suck. Because the thing is, you know, Lucy has put together, she practically has gift wrapped any media person who wants to go out and report the truth on the story. Lucy Commissar has given you all the material to do it. You agree? I absolutely agree. And they can presented to any congressman or any senator and asked them the specific question, why are we allowing a U.S. citizen that dropped his U.S. citizenship to avoid paying taxes to control our sanctioned Treasury Department and weaponize it against his own enemies when he was busted for money laundering through Panama Papers, most like Fonseca? Well, and let's point out another crime of Bill Browder is a perjury in front of Congress, right? He took it, you saw him take an oath. You know, a picture of him standing there raising his hand. He took an oath and then he lied in front of Congress. And it would be easy if any Congressperson chose to 
take him in front of the committee and ask him a tough question or two. The other thing, you've seen enough broader testimony. So let's try to be fair to him, but ju just fair. I'm going to say fairly, at a minimum, Bill Browder is not a good liar. Do you agree with me? Uh, I think we've all, well, those of us that know Browder, we've seen him run from his own subpoenas, from his own court cases, because he realizes that he can't lie enough. So um, it was very well documented by Glenn Simpson, first of all, through uh, the release of um, uh, Senator Feinstein's website. So on Glenn Simpson's testimony, he said that was his job. He was hunting down Browder for his money laundering, and he caught him. And he mentions that he was busted in, in the Panama Papers. So it just it keeps going on, and people recognize that he's a liar, and they know he's a con, they know he's a thief, and then somehow they end up under his umbrella uh, with a book club. Like he's promoting their books, and you know all of a sudden they're best friends when they were you know hunting his crimes. Same thing with Jonathan Weiner, though. If you look at his history, he was hunting criminals, and now he's friends with Kodakovsky. Right, exactly right. He was investigating him, then he realized. Money's not in being an investigator, right? The money is in representing these guys' as clients. So I, I think Bill Browder, I'm reminded of John Lovett's character, the liar, you know, the Lovett's character. Browder is that level of liar. He's not good at it. He's very bad. He gets shifty. He, he stutters, slips over his words. So... All you have to do is call Browder in front of a committee and ask him a couple of tough questions. He'd fold like a sheep's suit. Right, Billy? And you, you talked about running or, or the footage of him, which you can find easily. Bill Browder literally running down the street to avoid process server and running down the street. But That was his own... He was he was avoiding a process server for his own case that he requested. <laughs> yeah, but he didn't want to get he he didn't think he wanted, he didn't want to testify under oath because that never goes well for him. But the, the other thing that I think should be said about this is that any reporter, Daily Wire, Daily. Uh, the Daily Wire, Breitbart News, any outlet that wants to cover this, Lucy Commissar has laid out everything, and you could cover so much of this that is easy to understand. For instance, Bill Browder admitting under oath that Sergei Magnitsky didn't have a law degree. That's not tough. That's not in the weeds. Right? And they could cover that. And they just don't. They don't. And people who are supposedly their political adversaries, like John Kerry, who's an associate of Jonathan Weiner, it would expose them, but they don't want to do it. Millie, great call. Thanks so much. The Browder story is very frustrating to me because any reporter, anyone out there, it's a great story. You could cover it, but you won't. He's a chicken, to be blunt. Coming up right after this, a guy who's not chicken on the subject he covers, 
which is immigration. The great, brave Mark Kikorian. After this break, on Backstory. Back in the backstory, and the backstory is on 105.5 FM and AM 1380 in Washington, D.C., on your radio and on the internet everywhere. This half hour, we're joined by Mark Kikorian. He's the director of the Center for Immigration Studies, the top pro legal immigration think tank in the world, I would say. Mark, do you think you is I've often said you're the only game in town, basically, when it comes to explicitly pro-legal, anti-legal immigration think tank. Is that fair to say? And are you, in fact, the only one in the world? Well, I don't know. I won't claim to be the only one in the world, but certainly in the United States, we're the only think tank that makes the case for tighter immigration and lower overall numbers. There's some other think tanks, but they're all work for various uh, financial or um, political interests that push more immigration. Uh, but uh, so, yeah, I, I mean, look, I won't claim global that I'm globally unique, but at least in the United States, we're the only game in town. Well, no. And 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 I think you you're too humble here. You know, immigration, you know, think tanks. Can you think of one, another one in the world? Well, there are some that are specific to particular countries. There's something called, um, what is it now, Migration Watch UK in Britain that focuses on British immigration policy. And so it's perfectly appropriate because it's a national issue that countries have their own immigration, you know, their own immigration think tanks. But um, Really, other than them, it's fair to say there aren't that many. Uh, there's one in Hungary that I'm familiar with, the Migration Research Institute. That's pretty good in the sense of, you know, pro-control. Um, and there's got to be a few others, but uh, it's a good question. I don't know of I don't know of any others besides those. Yeah, no, it's amazing because here's why it's amazing. I think you take a position that most people were the Polling on it that was fair. Most people agree with your position. It, do, do, do you agree with that? That most people are pro rational immigration policy? Yeah, I think so, pretty clearly. Because uh, look, the only reason the amnesty people, basically the unlimited immigration crowd, hasn't won, even though they've tried over and over again, is that so many, so much of the public. Is against it, so uh, so yeah, I'd say broadly speaking, uh, most people are not where the leadership class—you know, business leaders, political leaders, media, all the rest of it—it's not where they are. There's a huge gap between regular people and our elites on immigration. No, good point. Now, Mark, I, I, one immigration issue. We'll talk about the southern border in a second, but one immigration issue. That's immediately comes up because of the war between Russia and Ukraine. 
is asylum, because there's a refugee crisis. And before we talk about how the asylum system in the United States has basically been kidnapped by political ideologues to the detriment of refugees, we'll talk about that in a second. Let me, I just want to make one broad point, and I, I'm not asking you to agree with this, but I want to point out something. Should it tell me something that there's a huge number of refugees from Ukraine? We've all heard that. But you've also, people have also heard that a lot of the refugees are going to Russia. Now, what does that tell you about this conflict? That there are people not just fleeing to Poland and other countries like that, but that some are going to Russia. Does it tell you at minimum that this situation is more complex than the press is presenting it? And there might be the citizens of Ukraine might have varying views on who's responsible for this crisis. You see what I'm saying, Mark? I guess. I mean, you know, we deal with U.S. immigration policy, so I really don't know what, you know, beyond what I read in the news, I don't know what's going on in Europe one way or the other. No, no, that's, that's fair. Now, now, Mark, this refugee crisis points up the problem of asylum. And we have an asylum system in the United States. However, when I say it's been politically hijacked by ideologues, that is right. And the valid position of taking in refugees has been sacrificed to being used for illegal immigration. Right, Mark? Yeah, no, definitely our asylum system. Uh, it has been uh, completely abused and subverted. Uh, in Just to make the terminology clear, in American law, a refugee is someone that faces persecution, who, but who is overseas, and that we affirmatively go abroad and bring the person here. So that's something we are in charge of. We can disagree. Is it, you know, do we have too many? Do we pick people the wrong way? But the point is we control it. Asylum is a person who is similarly persecuted, supposedly, but who takes it upon themselves to get here illegally and then say that we have to let them in. So it's something we don't have control over. Um, and that is what is driving the disaster at the southern border, because people are using asylum claims as a gambit, as sort of a, 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 a gimmick to get past the Border Patrol, to be let in and let go and uh, stay here as long as possible. And that really does have to be changed fundamentally. Otherwise, neither we nor mo many other developed countries are going to be able to control their borders at all. Now, as I understand it, they're gaming the system in two ways. One is the definition of why someone's seeking asylum. But the other one is, as I understand it, they have to immediately come from the country to the border to be considered for, right? No, I understand, yeah. In other words, that they have to come straight here and can't pass through other countries. The way it works is our law actually does allow people to pass through other countries and then get here and make an asylum claim. 
It shouldn't, and it doesn't have to, because the UN treaty that we've signed on this issue, called the Convention on the Status of Refugees, and then there's the uh, follow-on called the Protocol. The point is the UN treaties say that you have to consider an illegal immigrant's asylum claim, but only if they come directly from the country where they're persecuted. So our law actually is more expansive and allows more abuse of asylum than the UN treaty even requires us to do. So that's kind of on us. It doesn't have to be that way, but that's the way our law is written, unfortunately. And how they game the system using a, a, a looser definition of what constitutes an asylum claim. Yeah, that's the other thing this administration has done, or one of the many things it's done to exacerbate the border crisis, is that it is loosening the definition of who qual of what persecution is. Because under the law now, and this is based on the UN treaty, you have to show you were persecuted based on one of five reasons. The first four are easy. Uh, race, religion, pol political opinion, or nationality. Those are pretty clear. There's still some wiggle room. What does political opinion mean? That kind of thing. But that's, that's pretty clear. It's the last category called that you've been persecuted because of, quote, membership in a particular social group, unquote, which means anything a judge or activist lawyer wants it to mean. And what this administration has done is just expanded what that means. If you're in a place with a lot of crime, well, that makes you a membership of a particular social group of people who don't like crime or you know, domestic violence or whatever it is. Basically, they want to turn asylum as a, a kind of end run around the immigration system so that pretty much anybody who's coming from you know, a crummy country, because you're not leaving, you know, nice places. Uh, anybody who wants to come to the United States can make up some plausible rationale to be let in, at which point the limits on immigration that Congress has passed no longer mean anything. Now, I'm going to talk about this. There's a lot of stuff going on with the border. And before we talk about that, do you have an opinion on the new Supreme Court Justice, Justice Brown? Jackson, how is she going to be on immigration issues? Do we have any sense from her past decisions on what we can expect from her in terms of immigration issues? Should they become, should they come in front of the Supreme Court? Yeah, I expect her to be pretty bad. Now, she hasn't had a lot of decisions on immigration, but there have been, a, there has been one, and I actually don't remember the details of it now. My, I have a legal eagle who follows that stuff. But there was one she ruled pretty badly on and was slapped down by the Supreme Court. Uh, so now she's going to be on the Supreme Court. On the other hand, she's going to be replacing someone who was reliably left-wing anyway. So uh, whether it's on immigration or anything else, I don't actually expect um, the new justices, you know, membership there to be... Um, you know, to actually change the outcome in any of these decisions. Now, speaking, you referred to her as left wing, and and that's correct in in their, this case. But it's interesting. Immigration has become a very party line issue, with Republicans on one side and Democrats on on the other. But it was not always that way, was it? 
immigration policy, there's a long tradition of people on the left being in favor of immigration controls. Isn't there? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's really only in the past few years, before Trump, but still relatively new, that the mainstream of the Democratic Party has radicalized on immigration. Because you had, you know, uh, Cesar Chavez, who was a strong proponent of border control. He was pro-amnesty, too, for people who had been here and lived here for many years. So I'm not saying he was, you know, a complete um, immigration hawk in every respect, but on border control, he was hardcore. Uh, Barbara Jordan, first black congresswoman from the South, uh, from she was from the Houston area, uh, was the head of an immigration commission to study immigration, bipartisan commission uh, that issued its reports under Clinton. And they called for tough enforcement and reduction overall in the number of immigrants. And so, I mean, there's plenty of other examples, but a liberal restrictionists were, uh, you know, a real thing. I have a couple of them still working for me, some writers, uh, but you're not seeing a lot of that among young people because the mainstream of the left, they're always fringy people, but the mainstream now is radical on immigration. They reject immigration law as such. They don't believe the American people have any right to turn away anybody at the border, period. Now, we had Albert Guillory on yesterday. He's running for lieutenant governor in Louisiana. And I asked him about this move that Greg Abbott, the, the governor of Texas, made two days ago, where he signed into law and issued an order that illegal immigrants would be offered bus rides to D.C. in Texas. And I asked Albert whether he considered that a stunt or a serious move. And Albert said he had, when he was in the legislature in, in, in Louisiana, he'd done a similar thing, busing illegal immigrants who were coming into Louisiana to D.C. And I thought this was a brilliant move. I, I asked about it being a stunt because it seems like the kind of thing that some people are going to put down as a stunt, but it's not a stunt. First off, they're really going. The buses are really going to be running. Do you think this is a, a, a valid political response to this issue? And what specifically is Abbott responding to? Well, I mean, of course it's a stunt, but you know, there's, there's a place for stunts in politics. The issue is, is, is this, you know, bust the illegals to DC thing, is that all they're gonna do? Or are they gonna do other things that are not stunts? And the answer is, they are taking other steps. The, you know, in his announcement, the thing that got everybody's attention was this, you know, bussing the illegals thing. And, you know, you can see it's red meat for people. I understand that. And again, there's a place for that sort of political theater. I hope they go through with it. But he also announced that Texas state officials who have authority to inspect Mexican trucks when they cross the border, not the federal immigration inspection, but after that to inspect the trucks for safety, they have yesterday morning, started 
a basically a kind of slowdown of the trucks. They're they're taking like 15 minutes for each truck, and there's hundreds and hundreds of them lined up, and basically, and they're doing it clearly to apply pressure on Mexico, because that because the trucks from Mexico, you know, bringing car parts and all the rest of it, most of them pass through Texas. And so this is a unmistakable move by Governor Abbott to try to squeeze Mexico to get them to do a better job of keeping people from getting to the border in the first place. So if, and there's other things Texas is doing, they're arresting illegals uh, who are crossing private land or state land as uh, trespassers. There's a limit to how good, much good that's going to do. But my point is that Texas is doing a bunch of things, some of which clearly are just political theater. But again, there's a role for that. But some of them really are substantive and have, uh, you know, have a real prospect of potentially doing some good. And what's Greg ever responding to? Is there an explosion of illegal immigrants trusting the border? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, we're at record levels of uh, arrests at the border. In fact, I was just at the border in South Texas, all the way down in South Texas, McAllen and Brownsville. And uh, I was talking to a Border Patrol agent. He said just in his uh, station in the sector, in other words, it's sort of a piece of a piece of the border, they're arrest- and it's the most busy, obviously, but they're arresting thousand people every day. And, you know, what does that mean? Well, Obama's Homeland Security Secretary, Jay Johnson, who, you know, I didn't agree with him. He's a Democrat, but he was a serious man who took his job seriously. He has said that any time there were more than a thousand illegal alien arrests on the whole Mexican border, that was a bad day. We are now talking about a thousand in one corner of it averaging something like 7,000 a day across the border. And DHS is preparing after this Title 42 rule is ended late in May, preparing for as much as 18,000 illegal aliens a day. And and, And Texas has more than half of the border with Mexico. So this is directly affecting all parts of Texas. And the governor is within his rights to try to do what he can within the law to try to stop it, turn it away, prevent it. Now, I don't know if you know this offhand, but I would assume that we're coming into a prime illegal immigration season at the southern border because of the weather. The springtime is a pretty good time to go across because the summer very hot and people die in the desert there. That's brutal time. But I would say, I would guess that Title 42 ending, and explain what Title 42 is. Sure. Um, Yes, this is definitely peak time for illegal crossing. But uh, since Biden has taken over, he has issued such a compelling invitation to illegal aliens that the seasonal swings don't even seem to matter much anymore. and, and one of the things that uh, the invitations, basically, he's issued to illegals is weakening and, as of next month, ending something called Title 42. That's just a shorthand term for a public health order because of the pandemic that, along with other things we did 
during the pandemic, you know, school closings and mask mandates, all that stuff. This was part of that. And what it does is it allows the Border Patrol to just bounce people back into Mexico, no hearings, no nothing. And Trump put this into place. It was remarkably effective, as you can imagine, at reducing crossings. Biden has been kind of narrowing and narrowing whom it applies to. So he doesn't do it to unaccompanied teenagers. He doesn't apply it in, to very many adults who bring kids with them. He still has it in place, though. So it's kind of, it's a measure that isn't controlling the border, but it's keeping it from completely spinning out of control. And they're ending it next in May, May 23rd, at the behest of the radical anti-borders people in the administration and the activists outside. And we'll see if, I mean, even some Democrats are saying this is a mistake. Both Cinema and Kelly, the senators from Arizona, as well as some of the border senators, uh, congressmen rather, in Texas, have been begging the administration to put off, in other words, to keep Title 42 in place, because as bad as it is now, and it is unprecedentedly bad, it's going to be way worse starting uh, at the end of May. And it's one factor I think that's going to lead to the drubbing the, of Democrats. The the we're talking a red wave. We're talking a red torrential rain, heavy flood coming. I say. And the Democrats are going to lose by every standard in historic numbers in November. But with the size of the immigration problem and as much resonance as it has with the public, I'm not seeing a lot of Republican politicians. They're still acting, you know, the, the, some, some paid lip service to it. But no one's doing it. Trump didn't, as they saying, making it a huge focus of their campaign. There's sort of the good and the bad side. The bad side, to really reinforce what you're saying, is that Senator Tom Tillis from North Carolina, who's always been kind of weak on a lot of issues, he actually has announced this week he's starting negotiations with the Democrats to try to come to a comprehensive immigration reform deal, in other words, an amnesty deal. It's ridiculous that they would even bring this up. It's, it's almost surreal. The good side, though, is that I was just down, when I was in South Texas, I met with a couple of um, Republican candidates. There are two Mexican-American Republican women down there. Uh, and you know we're gonna have a Hispanic Republican woman congresswoman from South Texas, at least one, maybe two or even three, starting in November. And one of them I spoke with, uh, Monica De La Garza, um, no, De La Cruz, Monica De La Cruz, she said, I asked her, what are the top issues here in your uh, district? She said, immigration, immigration, and immigration. So the people along the border really, really are worried about this. And Republican politicians there are taking up the issue. But you're right that there are still too many kind of pre-Trump establishment um, Republicans left who still think that you know, this is, they can go back to business as usual and try to, you know, push amnesty and increased immigration again after having uh, basically failed a couple of times and 
in doing so, gotten their own voters so angry that they nominated and elected uh, Trump. Now, Mark, what are the, you say? She says immigration is issue one, two, and three for people in South Texas. What are they facing practically? Why is immigration such a big deal to them? Not just in theoretical terms, but I'm sure in practical terms, what are they facing? Well, it's coming into their communities, and they are, in other words, if, if they're depending on where they live, there's actually people, you know, walking through their communities, through their property. They're placing huge burdens on the social services and the, you know, volunteer services and everything in their communities. Some of them are just staying, although most are moving on. And, and this is something a lot of people don't get, is that in a place like South Texas, lots of people are related to border patrol and law enforcement of other kinds. And they're, you know, they're conservatives. I mean, they're law and order, patriotic Americans. Now, a lot of them do speak Spanish, but it's kind of more a regional culture there. It's like being Cajun in Louisiana or something like that. They're unapologetic, no holds barred, patriotic Americans. And, you know, they can't stand the fact that their border is being, that their country is being overrun right in their communities when it, you know, a little more than a year ago, it wasn't anything like this. Yeah, and, and that that's a good point. And I think a lot of Mexican-Americans, this issue really resonates with them being anti-legal immigrant because perhaps their parents came here legally and they had to go through the process, right? And now they're seeing people breaking the rules. Yeah, no question about it. I spoke. We, we I spoke with a bunch of other conservatives, local Republican officials, like you know, former county chairman and you know, a, 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 a poll, you know, election uh, an area polling bo polling area judges, stuff like that. Just grassroots local Republican activists, and they're just seething, seething at what they're seeing with Biden. And then you add that to the other non-immigration issues they face down there. Lots of guys in South, South Texas go to West Texas and work in the oil industry. And Biden's, you know, uh, anti-oil, anti-natural gas policies tick them off as well. And, you know, you've got the other hooky stuff the left is doing. All this boys should wear dresses and all that kind of garbage. And, you know, you add that on top of the immigration. These people are just hopping mad. And I think we're going to see that in November when I expect, like I say, not just a red wave, but a red tidal wave. Mark Kerkorian, fantastic parents. Thanks so much for joining us. Mark Kerkorian is the Center for Immigration Studies, CIS.org, to find out more. And you should. A great organization. When we come back, more on the backstory. from America and just outside the matrix with a show that brings you the truth behind the headlines. I'm Lee Stranahan. This is The Backstory. Fantastic appearance by Mark Kerkorian. 
from the Center for Immigration Studies last hour. Once again, the website is cis.org and go to that fantastic site. Now we're very pleased to be joined as our guest co-host for the hour, Tyler Nixon, good friend of the show. Tyler, how you doing? Doing great. Beautiful Friday. And, uh, it's uh, good to be with you, Lee. I tell you what, I, I, the immigration, um, what's the word? Uh, complete abdication of enforcement by Biden should be, yeah, it should, well, it should, it is complete, um, just like I said, abdication of his, his, his duty to enforce that law. He, that should be article of impeachment number one, you know, next January. Frankly, I mean, it's disgusting and it's just it's almost designed to infuriate the public and to rile rile up uh, and then, uh, you know, just insinuate all kinds of crime issues and uh, problems into so many communities around the country. I mean, this is just this is not immigration. It's an invasion of our country. And the numbers are getting outrageously big. They're getting huge. And it is an outrage. Joining us this hour, by the way, Taylor Hudak, journalist. We'll be talking about some issues with her regarding free speech. She's been an advocate for Julian Assange. But Taylor Hudak is with us, talking about a number of other issues and updates on Assange this hour. And let me do, do me a favor. Tyler, say the name of the show. Watch what happens. Okay, if you're listening to the backstory, love it. See, as if, as if by magic, you say the word, the boom comes. There you go. Great job, Tyler. Now, Tyler, I'm going to ask you a question. We're going to go to phones. Well, I see Owl Killer. We'll get to you in one second. But name, I'm picking an arbitrary number. Let's say five. Name five issues that you think Republican candidates for office. Anywhere at any level, let's say congressman are, you know, but I don't care, governor, and five issues they are insane if they don't talk about. You named one of them. Oh, I mean, well, okay, one that, yeah, immigration. Well, I think immigration, one thing that I think is overlooked is, is all these people coming into the country, they're competing with other Americans for goods and services. So inflation, you know, that, that that's inflationary. Um, and I think, inf- you know, just the economic issue the, is, you know, the, the state of the economy, uh, inflation, generally speaking, um, you know, you're going to see sh- uh, the, the supply shortages. Um, I think that there's still a lot of lingering uh, resent and, and just sort of bewilderment over the measures that were taken, particularly in these blue states that were so draconian that shut down businesses. I mean, I, I'm, I drive around Denver and I'm just still still shocked at businesses that I see that were viable, uh, like amazing, you know, vibrant businesses that just completely went away. They're shuttered now. And I thought, okay, well, maybe they were temporarily shuttered back, you know, a year and a half ago. They're gone. They're not coming back. And there are so many people uh, small businesses and still, you know, mom and pop shops who have been had, had their lives destroyed by that. That I, I think that is definitely still, and in particularly the vaccine mandate. You know, by the, I mean, just because the Democrats decided suddenly the the uh, so-called pandemic was over, 
you know, uh, in, in a flash doesn't mean that, again, the damage isn't isn't uh, still lingering uh, and still existing. And also that people aren't or that let's put it this way, that they 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 people don't realize that the government is just as ready with Fauci, you know, sort of creeping around out there to, to lock something in again or to, to try the same whole round of uh, totally destructive policies. Uh, you know, so I think that's another issue. Um, Let's see. I would say, you know, I mean, there's so much that the Biden administration has tried to do by, I mean, you look at, uh, I think there's some, you know, I don't know how much it would be necessarily of a top five issue, but I think the the attempts to uh, implement gun controls, um, one thing I've noticed is that, you know, say 30 years ago, 35, 40 years ago, you could get, you could say it was almost split equally down the middle in the country in terms of the willingness to embrace new, you know, more restrictive gun laws. But and despite all of the propaganda and hype that's gone on since, um, and particularly, you know, with some of these uh, shootings that were sensationalized in the last maybe 10 years, um, I've noticed a shift. And I think a lot of it's been among principled liberals towards um, basically, you know, folks who said, oh, you know, gun control is fine. They took that position from the left left viewpoint have now said, nope, no more gun controls. The government is out of control, and they realize that you know it's the only thing that's a backstop, truly, uh, against just straight up tyranny like they had in Australia. Um, and I think that you know there's definitely going to be um, a vigorous defense of that and a pushback against the Biden administration. Um, gosh, I guess you know I mean the economy is so dominant; it's almost like that 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 would almost take up five issues if you broke it down into different aspects of it, uh, and just the. Of course, energy prices, you know, I mean, that's that's part of the inflationary aspect. But the fact of it, of of what has been done um, just to just, you know, the, the Keystone pipeline sh- uh, uh, shuttering and just the totally, totally anti uh, working working class policies um, with this crazy, you know, sort of climate change stuff um, that's been pushed, you know, the Green New Deal and all that by the Biden administration. I think that that's definitely something that resonates with people. So um, what, what would you say? Did I miss anything? What would you add to that? I'd say some of these issues regarding uh, school, school boards in general and students in general, specifically dealing with transgender issues and as well as this uh, curriculum that is fundamentally anti-American, the woke, the wokeness that's creeping its way into the curriculum across the country, I think is something that really resonates with people, focusing on things that aren't education, but focusing on a social agenda. I I, I think that resonates with a lot of people. No, 100%. That that is probably, that could be actually up there right at the top, maybe maybe the top issue, because it's so endemic throughout the, so many school districts. It's like, what, I, you know, when did when did this like hardcore sort of totally fringe ideologically um, leftist um, sort of combine take over education in so many places? Like even you know, like rural Virginia, you're talking about, as we saw, um, where this is just this is indoctrination into the most radical, kooky leftist uh, doctrine doctrine that you can come up with. I mean, it's not even like just a, a, you know, a Howard Zinn type spin on history or something. I mean, this is just wacko stuff. 
And it's, it seems like it's meant to, frankly, scramble the brains of these young kids, you know, to where like they're just indoctrinated in this kooky, detached from reality nonsense um, where it's, it's constantly shifting too. it's like whatever, whatever teacher says, you know, leftist, blue haired, nose ring, weirdo, jerism, whatever teacher says is, is the latest, you know, I, I guess you probably heard this where one person even said, one of these wackos even said uh, that, you know, you have to, you have to figure out what her, their pronouns are at any given moment of the day, just based on their demeanor. Like, I mean, this is just, these people are control freak and they are told control freaks and totally fringe. And they should be just absolutely, I just, it just shocks me that we have these people embedded not only in the, the, you know, in the classrooms, but on the school boards, like what the hell's going on? It's like almost like there was some concerted cabal or some sort of like master plan across the country. I mean, it just seems odd that this would happen everywhere, everywhere you look. No, right. Like you say, Northern Virginia, but also uh, everywhere in the country, literally there's stories about this. Want to go to calls because I'll, I'll pick up on this with you. I got another thing to talk to you about, about, what what that was a sad question for whether you think some Republican Congress candidate needs to pull a new Gingrich and introduce an essential a version of the contract for America. I'm not saying what the contract for America was, the specific points, but this agenda, a national agenda for candidates to sign on to, I think would be a winner politically. I'll talk to you about that. Later, let's get the calls. 202-521-1320. The killer of owls, what is on your mind? Hey, and, and I'm on with uh, Tyler Nixon, whose uh, uncle, Richard Nixon, probably had the greatest quote of all time about Bohemian Grove. And if you haven't heard it, you should go ahead and uh, take a listen. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah. Wait, wait, Tyler, do you know what he's talking about? Yeah, I do. I do. I, and I, I guess I could say it. Um, but I don't know if the the, word, the particular word he used would be too kosher on the air. It's, he called it the uh, well. I'll, I'll let I'll let I'll let the owl owl man say it. <laughs> All right. No, no. You, okay, but watch out because you do have to watch out. Okay. About saying that word. So so tiptoe around that. Go ahead, owl killer. Blanky. So it's the blankiest thing that he's ever seen in his life. He won't even shake hands with the people from San Francisco. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The, 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 let's call, uh, let me add, it was the flaggiest GD thing yes. he's ever seen. Yes. <laughs> and only the way Nixon could say it and with that shot, the flaggiest, you know, thing you've ever heard seen. I have two, I have two points. My first point is going to go into um, what you guys are just talking about. I would say deindustrialization should be a major thing the Republicans should run on. And just looking at how, I, as far as the the left pushes with the green agenda, I would I, I think some candidates should say, okay, if if that's the case, we're going to go down with the ship. We're going to produce stuff, and we're going to ha- we're going to be energy independent. I think somebody that goes that extreme is going to get a lot of people on board, um, regardless of how it sounds in the beginning. It's just like how the green agenda and the, you know the anti-Americanism in the school in the beginning is extreme. If we go extreme with, hey, we're going to produce stuff here, we're going to be self-sufficient, we're going to be self-reliant, That is, those are major winning issues for people um, coming, come, coming up in uh, November. Um, the second thing I wanted to touch on was 
When I said the other day that I think Trump was on something in Ukraine, I agree. He's he seems to be clueless on a lot of stuff. But there's something going on in Ukraine that it was worth impeaching him over him even being around the stuff. And I am now I don't know if you saw John uh, Maxey on uh, Newsmax um, the other day talking about what what now he's in Switzerland and what he found on allegedly found on the Hunter Biden laptop. I th- I think there there might be a case I could be wrong, but what if Hunter Biden is actually the guy in the, the Steele dossier? Everything that they say Trump did, it was him. Because some of the stuff is so outrageous that I don't think you can make it up. I think some of it had to have happened. And but I, I what if you just replace Trump with Hunter Biden? Does that fit? And is it worth the world to bury those secrets in Ukraine? Well, I got to say, the Steele dossier, the tell would have been if they'd said Donald Trump was smoking crack. You know, right there, that would have been a tell that it's not Trump, it's Biden. But I, I, John, John Maxian's president, what you're talking about is they say that 450 gigabytes of deleted emails from the Hunter Biden laptop are about to be released. But that's what you're talking about, right, Al Keller? Yes, that, that is precisely what I'm talking about. But it's more than the business deals. It's the other stuff that's on there that he I, I don't even want to get into it because, it, you know, that you're speculating. But what he said on Newsmax was it's devastating. And it involves underage girls. And it's touching on that issue. And if that's if that's the case, I mean, is it? If if that's the case, I mean that that's something the, the FBI should be ashamed of themselves for s- sitting on this. And let me point out that the other reason that's going to resonate with Tyler, have you heard about the deleted emails from the Biden laptop that are theoretically coming out soon? I did hear about that actually, uh, and, I, and I was listening to Maxi in a couple of presentations he did. Well, he's really compelling. Um, I, I had not heard. Uh, the extent or what, you know, or, or any allusions to what, what was actually, uh, you know, what the emails were, but I can't imagine it's, it's probably the worst of the worst. Yeah. And, and I think it, the big deal is now that the times and the Washington post and CNN have made the Biden laptop is real. They're not going to be able to bat away these, the allegations that are going to come up because of these deleted emails. They're not going to be able to say, carte blanche, well, this is uh, a lie or Russian disinformation. They're going to have to deal with this stuff. And part of that explains, I think, part of why you see Joe Biden being ghosted in his own White House. when, Like when Obama was there and you see everyone ignoring him. I think he's dead man walking. What do you think, Tyler? Yeah. No, I think I think what they'll do is they'll they'll raise twenty fifth amendment concerns, but rather than have to remove him, they'll because you know he alluded to this. He said, "Well, you know, if I can't, I don't feel like I can do it anymore." He said, "I'll step aside and you know, Kamala can take over." Uh, he he said this like right at the beginning, which was kind of an odd thing for anybody any newly elected president to say. But I think what it'll they'll do is they'll threaten. They'll say, Hunter, your son is going to go to jail for a long time. Either that or you step down and they'll force him out. And he'll, he'll gladly do it. He'll, he'll, you know, he'll, I think he's, he's, 
you can see it's just it's it's wearing him down to to becoming a just a totally senile fool. And uh, you know, I don't think even Jill at this point. Um, yeah, I don't think she. I don't think there's any there's any impetus to hang on any longer. If if you know once once the tide turns, which it already has, really. I, I agreed. Joe Chu, five two one thirteen twenty. Tarif, what's on your mind? Um, thank y'all for taking my call. Uh, first, I'd like to say free during science. I have two comments. First comment, Amen. A news report. First, I'd like to say, um, oh, excuse me. Uh, I saw a news report saying they got the last pocket in Maripool. It's surrounded by Russian forces. So, you know, pretty soon they're going to be, you know, wiped out. And then they're going to have a total cleanse of the area to find out what's going on in that region. And my last comment is dealing with um, the sanctions on Russia. Um, I was listening to Alex McCurris, and he was talking about that the, the West is becoming very um, desperate because summer is coming up. And once summer goes away and fall comes in, that means you're going to have, you need extra gas, natural gas, and oil to survive in the summertime, I mean, in the wintertime. So if the war is not ceased by the summer, which Europe have a chance, you know, Europe will be all right dealing with the energy um, costs, right? If it's not finished by the summer and it goes into fall, then they're going to be hurt, and they're really going to need help, you know, because with all these sanctions blocking them from getting natural gas, uh, the European economy won't do good. So you, you seeing, you're going to see more and more acts of desperation coming from the West leading up until the next four, six, you know, four to six months. So let's see how long this war goes. If we go past the summer, Europe ain't going to do good, you know. So, yeah, thank you for taking my call. Thanks, Rick. Great call as usual. 202-521-1320. Let's go to Atlanta and Brave. What's on your mind? Hey, what's going on, guys? Um, yeah, I, I like to just follow up on um, what Alakula was talking about. I, I did hear um, uh, Jack. Ma it was a clip from the Ann Steele podcast um, with Jack Massey, and he was talking about um, <clears throat> the emails and a, a younger around the age of like fourteen, something like that. That apparently Hunter Biden was, um, but had, I, I guess the best way is to say he was training her up. <laughs> is the best way to say it. So um, yeah, I. I I wonder just how much stuff will come out, but I do. I kind of disagree with you guys. I think that they will try to ignore it unless it's, unless the stuff comes out during a time where Republicans are um, in control. And even then, I wonder just how far they're willing to go. Because I mean, yeah, I know each individual side and supporters of each individual side likes to pretend like you know their side is going to go all in. Um, I, I have no faith in Republicans or Democrats. I, I have some faith. That Republicans are pretty steamed over, are pretty heated over um, the treatment that side's gotten since the Democrats have been in office. But I, I have no faith in them. I have no faith in none of these guys. So um, I don't know how far to be willing to go, especially um, if, depending on how far it would take a, a sitting president down, right? Um, because even with Trump, like they did the whole Russia, Russia thing and all of this stuff, but they, they were, they still, um, they still didn't go past a certain point because it never required them to uh, look back at past presidents, too. And again, I think that the machine protects the machine, even though Trump wasn't on the part of it. I wanted to ask you guys um, at this time, 
Um, what's your take on the uh, article that everybody's been covering um, in the media where they're basically admitting that they've been basically using propaganda uh, supposedly to affect Putin's mind when technically, when, when obviously it was really to uh, propagandize the American people for, for more war? Uh, I'll leave it at that. Yeah, now, no, they've been quoted intelligence officials from the United States have been quoted saying they've been putting out stuff just to mess with Putin's mind. Well, first off, Messing with Putin's mind when you're lying to the American public, I don't think that should excuse it. I understand doing things to try to confound the expectations of political leaders of other countries. I get that. But once you start lying to the American people, then you say, oh, we were just doing it to mess with his mind. I don't think that is a sufficient reason to lie to the American public. Tyler, what do you think? Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, look, it's one thing on a and sort of strategically in a battlefield sense, maybe with, uh, you know, the situation on the ground there to put out disinformation to try to, uh, you know, confound the opposition, the enemy, whatever. And I don't see why we've jumped in. <laughs> I mean, this is ridiculous how, how far in we are with Ukraine and Zelensky. It, that, that clown, um, frankly. And, you know, I, it, yeah, you, you're exactly right. It's one thing to have like, you know, sort of limited situational disinformation, but when you're putting out just grand bald faced lies on the international stage and you're lying to the public as well as to supposedly Putin, it's just, you know, you're into the level of manipulation that just separates us from our own government and, and, you know, just points out and, and highlights how, out of control, the intelligence services have become in this country. Now, Tyler, I'm going to follow up on what I started the half hour talking about, which is things that Republicans should focus on. I think that if someone, enterprising Republican, wants to make a name for themselves, what they should do is take a page from the New Gingrich playbook and the Contract for America. And I'm not talking about the specifics of the Contract for America. But the broad idea, what Newt did essentially was say, here's an agenda that we candidates can sign on to. And he brought up specific issues. And candidates would say, I agree with those, with this, the contract for America. I think if some Republican did that and put forward an America first and, and called for things like an investigation of election interference by the Biden administration and intelligence officials in 2016 that took bolder, took bold positions that are the public agrees with. I think the public wants to see that. I think if they allowed Republican candidates to say, yes, I agree with this agenda, that would be significant and it would it would it would give a lot of candidates, it would allow them to be brave. They wouldn't have to be like standing alone on that. They'd be signing on to something that a number of candidates have signed on to. What do you think about that idea, Tyler? I mean, as you know, I worked for Newt Gingrich at the time of the, of the introduction of the contract with America. I arrived there in August of 94. It is, you know, we start working for him. And it was exciting and, and it was absolutely galvanizing. 
And I've heard many rumblings because it's a very similar, you know, similar circumstances we're coming into. And I'll tell you what, it's funny you you say that not the specific points on the agenda or on the contract with America, but I mean, I have a signed copy that I keep right here. And, you know, they're, they're all the same issues, frankly, and it's still the same uh, problems. You know, the first one is balanced budget amendment line item veto. Second is stop violent criminals. Third is welfare reform. Fourth, protect our kids um, from child porn, frankly, and, you know, and deadbeat dads. Tax cuts for families. Six, strong national defense. Seven, raise the senior citizen earning limit. Eight, roll back government regulations. Nine, common sense legal reform, i.e. tort reform. And then 10, which ought to be now number one, congressional term limits. I mean, I think that is a big issue that I frank that they that needs to happen in this country. Um, it has needed to happen for 50 years and would, I think, really, really strike a blow to the um, to the uh, the Biden like perpetual incumbent elite would be elite um, political class, the, the parasitic class that has attached itself uh, to, to the side of government. And just all it does is is take money and expand and expand and expand. Now, I, you know, you're going to have to you're going to have to at the same time, obviously, take on the permanent bureaucracy because the problem when you have obviously and that's this is the counter argument that when you have term limit limits, you, you know, limit the ability of people to comprehend the full extent and to deal with these powerful bureaucracies when they're only there for maybe 12 years at most. But that being said, I think we got to start somewhere. And, and maybe we should have some sort of limit on federal service as well. You know, I mean, it's these people get these lifetime benefits. And frankly, the Supreme Court ought to be limited. I think these lifetime appointments are ludicrous. And uh, no, contract with America, a second, you no, know, part two, whatever you want to call it, America first agenda would be out, would be outstanding. Now, the problem is you don't have Newt Gingrich. You don't have that type of leadership anymore. You have Kevin McCarthy, you know, and these sort of just trying to speak the uh, speak the right words to keep himself viable so he can take over as speaker. He needs to not be speaker and neither does Mitch McConnell need to be the Senate majority leader. If this uh, Republicans are serious about change, those people cannot be the leadership. And I, I just think it stinks that you have this institutional sort of I've been here. I've been here. It's my turn. You know, I've been the leader. And when when these guys are sellouts and always have been, they're squishy rhinos. As far as I know, uh, McCarthy lives with with uh, Frank Luntz and Frank Luntz was uh, instrumental as a pollster at the time of the contract with America, helping the uh, congressional Republicans. But since then, has become at best a quizzling and at worst, a frankly feckless traitor uh, to the cause. And, and so, you know, it's like these associations matter. I mean, and this is what needs to be you know, swept out of the party. So, you know, we could have the greatest contract. But if we have what we had in 95, 96, which is essentially backstabbing Newt ultimately and selling it down the river, what good is it? No, and that's why I agree. I agree. There's no one in leadership who's going to do it. That's why I said some enterprising Republican trying to make a name for themselves. If they introduced it and they just started saying, we're going to do this, and they wrote down the 10 points they thought. What, let me ask you in the last minute we have here. Why was the contract for America galvanizing? What did, what did the effect of saying, here's an agenda, why was that so galvanizing? Well, because, well, it was galvanizing for the candidates. They, first of all, they felt they, they were able to 
sign on to something where it gave them a unity amongst themselves. And there was a there was a certain energy around that uh, that just propelled and compelled people um, who were running as well as the people working for them. That Hey, we're really working towards something that's concrete. It's not just, you know, hodgepodge district based. And also, um, you know, it also brought these people together as a working group before they were even elected. And it also showed the country that, look, we're serious. We're actually stepping, we're, we're, you know, the Republican Party is no longer, it's not just going to be, we're not the Democrats. We're actually offering a positive agenda, which is rare if you think about it. For the most part, it's usually, you know, I'm not, I'm not whoever's in power at the time, you know. Uh, they, I mean, you know, we could run as the anti-Democrats as the alternative, but why not offer a positive agenda? It's something that people can latch onto and look, at, you know, it also makes you a target, though. I mean, as we saw, you know, the contract on America and all the, the, the Democrat propaganda that came out. Um, but nevertheless, it, it definitely galvanized that Congress. And they did get a lot accomplished. They actually ended up balancing the budget for the first time in God knows how many decades. And that's why I think I think a lot of the Republican base, the voters, want that. They want to see. They feel like they're part of an informal wet red wave. They want to see something specific that they can get behind. Do you agree? Yes, and there's certainly enough issues. I think probably more than there were and, and back in '94. You know, there are there are compelling issues that you could put on a on a you know list of ten agenda items. There we go. Thanks so much for your expertise, Todd Nixon, joining us as guest host. When we come back from this break, Taylor Hudak, journalist, will be joining us on the backstory. FM, AM 1390. The backstory. Joining us now, Taylor Hudak, journalist. And hey, Taylor, how are you doing? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me on. Let me ask first off, where are you? Where in the world is Taylor Hudak? Because (laughs) you've been a, a world traveler. We've talked to you from London. We've talked to you from Budapest. Where are you now? Right now, I am actually in the United States. But you're right. I have been all over the place, it feels like. But yes, right now I'm, I'm back here in the U.S. Well, we're happy to have you at any, any place you are. Now, we've talked a lot about over the years about Julian Assange and issues of free speech. And let me say this. I'd like you to comment on the, what you see as the free speech issues facing the world now. And let me point out at the beginning that I mentioned we had an episode taken down from YouTube and I don't want to sound whiny. What I mean by that is I don't like the censorship that we're personally facing. But when I interviewed Alex Jones a few years ago, Alex, we're talking and Alex has faced a lot of censorship, but he made the point. He said in the interview, and he was really heartfelt. He said, Julian Assange is a hero. He said, I'm facing censorship issues, but he said, it's nothing compared to what Assange faces. So I, I'd like to point that out, especially when I know someone who knows the Assange story. If I complain about censorship, anyone talking about being removed from Twitter 
are being removed from YouTube, it should be pointed out, at least I'm able to go to lunch where I want to tomorrow. At least I'm able to see my family. Does that make sense? So I really like to emphasize that as bad as things are, they could be much worse, and they are worse for the hero, Julian Assange. So you understand why I'm pointing that out, Taylor? Yes, I do, and that was very well said. I think it's also very important to point out to the public when things are being censored. So I think that we should be raising awareness about censorship. And it's a it gives off a really bad feeling, doesn't it, to have your content taken down and to be silenced and censored. So I think it just gives off an overall bad feeling. And it turns out that the public tend to not like censorship at all. It's really insulting to the public because what it tells them and it tells consumers of the news, if you will, that they are not able to make their own decisions about what information they should take in, read, watch, or listen to. And it's very insulting to the public, and it's also an infringement on people's rights, their uh, right to know, their right to access information. And it's also a, a complete threat to, of course, free speech, freedom of expression, and the free press, which is something that I've been covering quite a bit and often on your show to talk about this, especially as we're seeing threats against the press uh, being played out uh, through the Assange case. An award-winning journalist is in the worst prison in the UK right now, and it will be going on uh, the three-year anniversary since he has been arrested and imprisoned. So April 11th, 2019 was when he was arrested in the UK and placed in Belmarsh Prison and were we're approaching that three-year mark now, and it's a good time to really raise awareness about his case. And unfortunately, Lee, as you know, he's getting closer and closer to facing extradition to the United States. And unfortunately, the courts just recently, the UK Supreme Court ruled that they will not hear his case on appeal. There is still hope, however, and the fight continues, and I would encourage everybody to not lose hope and to continue fighting for his freedom. And we could get into the specific updates a little bit later if you would like to, but the situation is unfortunately not looking very good. Now, Tyler Nixon, our guest co-host, do you have any comments on that to follow up with with, uh, on, on Assange? Tyler, go ahead. Well, I think, you know, Assange's treatment by our, our government is a turning point in so many ways, or a, if not a revelation of what sort of just bloodless evil people uh, have been have been uh, put in charge of and are and infest in so many ways. The intelligence, so-called intelligence community um, and the, the American political establishment that's, uh, you know, in, in basically what you could call the swamp in Washington, D.C. I mean, no, Assange is just how this man has been treated. I mean, is, is, is a human rights issue. Um, it, it, there's so much, so much there that reflects so poorly on our government that Americans ought to be outraged beyond belief. Just aside from the fact of you know the, the, the treatment of a journalist um, and the censorship, but just the fact of this man's due process rights uh, and and just the, the entire treatment of him. Uh, is such an abridgment of what we consider uh, basic civil and human rights that, um, to me, he he has become a litmus test for where someone stands. If you're against Assange or if you're in any way have this uh, bloodlust for Assange, you're twisted and you're, and you're a sick person 
And these are the types of people who should never be in, uh, you know, in positions of power. No, great statement, uh, Tyler Nixon. And I'll mention this just I, because I think it's important. Some of this I take very personally because, as you know, uh, Julian Assange suffered a stroke in prison uh, about, what, six months ago, right, Tyler? Taylor? Yes, that is correct. It was around the time where he had a pretty significant uh, court hearing uh, take place. I believe it was around the appeal hearings back in October or around the fall time period. But yes, he did suffer a stroke. His health has been declining quite a bit. You're correct. And and I would I I'm I don't say this to be dramatic. I'm serious. I suffered a stroke recently, and I've suffered several strokes over the years. I've literally had nightmares crying, thinking about what Assange faced. I can't imagine facing a stroke. I'm lucky. Once again, I'm lucky. I have a stroke, but I'm still alive. And therefore, they call it a mini stroke if you're still alive. But I've had a girlfriend taking care of me. I'm in my apartment. And it's still tough. I cried. It's nightmare time when I think about Assange having a stroke. It's so disorienting and being in prison. When I come think of that, that is a form of torture. And I just want to say that, that I've been able to identify with that because I can't imagine dealing with what I've dealt with with a stroke and instead of having, you know, people around me who care about me and well-wishers being in prison. And by the way, Belmarsh is, she's not being dramatic. It's a brutal prison. I've, I've been outside. It's a big, it's, it's one of those things where the security of the prison is based on being, having very thick walls, right? That Tyler, Taylor, I mean, it's, it's a brutal, it's an, it's an ancient prison. Drafty. It houses the UK's worst criminals, murderers, terrorists. It is a very, uh, it's a maximum security prison. That's what it is. So no, you're right in saying I'm, I'm not being dramatic or putting my own spin on it. It really is a, a very terrible place to be in, especially for somebody who is a journalist. I mean, again, these uh, he's there because he's facing extradition to the United States for receiving and publishing information that was in the public interest. This was material and journalism that won him numerous awards. Yes, and, and he should be, Julian Assange should be on an island somewhere basking in the sun. You know, that that's what he deserves. He deserves to be relaxed and, and around his family and, and, you know, a tropical hut of some kind. Uh, but instead, he's in a drafty Gower prison. So I just want to point that out because I, I do identify. I, I, I can't imagine it. I do want to say I'm, I'm happy to hear, though, that you're, that you're well, Lee, and that you um, had that support. Assange, unfortunately, had to go through this while being in prison. But one of the good things, though, that happened recently in his life is that he did get married to his fiancée, 
uh, they have two little boys together and he was able to at least get married. And I think that that was probably very, very special for him, something he probably really, really looked forward to. And so they were able to get married and uh, that was a, a good a good day for them both. However, of course, it should not have taken place at Belmarsh. They should have been able to marry uh, surrounded by their friends and family at a location of their choice. Not exactly a top honeymoon spot, I must say. You know, it's no Niagara Falls or Vegas. It's not a top honeymoon spot. Honey, we're going to Belmarsh. That's a tough, tough. wedding promise. So, yeah. so uh, now would- let's... Go ahead, Tyler Nixon. By the way, I'm, I'm glad we have Tyler Nixon on, but thanks, Rod, is a tongue twister. We've got Taylor and Tyler, and that's tough for me. <laughs> but go ahead, Tyler. Well, we're trying to get you back on track, uh, Lee. You know, we're going to make as many tongue twisters as possible. But uh, so, no, thanks. I appreciate the challenge. And Julian Assange is, uh, I, I don't think people can conceive of the fortitude and the courage this man possesses. Uh, and relative to the, you know, in, in, by contrast to the people who have become his uh, hunters and critics and in the intelligence community who hide behind, you know, the, the levers of power uh, and, and, you know, often are faceless bureaucrats, essentially, who have this bloodlust for the man. Um, and, you know, I can keep coming back to how, how badly it reflects on, on, on the people within our government. Um, and, and ultimately, what it really, really shows you is if you think about what was his, what was Assange's essential offense in their minds? You know, he didn't get anybody killed. He didn't reveal anything that was, uh, you know, particularly sensitive that, that would put anybody at risk other than obviously the criminals within our government. But, you know, there were, it shows you that the worst crime, the worst offense uh, to these megalomaniacal, uh, you know, government lifers and these people who manipulate lives and, conduct these uh, all sorts of nefarious operations and target someone like Assange, he can show you that the worst defense you can do to, in their minds is, is to defy them, to disobey what they consider, you know, it has to be or, or to not comply with whatever their uh, idea of such things as, you know, and uh, conflict or, uh, uh, you know, classification materials and, and their secrets. And, you know, you can, you, you can go out and murder people, you can go out and on the battlefield commit butchery, and you know that's just that's just part of that's just part of normal operations, right? But dare you defy them? Dare you not fall into line with what they consider appropriate behavior and respect for their authority? Uh, to you know, quote South Park, and that's the worst defense of all. And that's why you see this bloodlust for this man. It's like, what is these people are maniacal because he's challenged their authority more than anything else, or their legitimacy certainly. Now, Taylor, I have one other question related to Assange, and this is peripheral, but Sarah Palin recently announced she's running for Congress up in Alaska. I consider Sarah Palin an ideal for Assange support because she came out and she said, and it was brave of her to do it because it's a non-establishment position. What did you think of Sarah Palin coming out and saying, I especially like that she said, she said, I was not in favor of Assange at first. But she said when she looked into it, and I like that, because I think there's some people out there who don't know what to think about Assange. And it's brave of someone to come forward and say, look, 
I was fooled by the establishment position on Assange. I thought he wasn't a good guy. Then I looked into it, and I'm in favor of him. What did you think of Sarah Palos a few years ago? What do you think of her running for Congress after she came out with her support for Assange? I think it's great. And I think more people running for office need to show their support for Julian Assange, to not be afraid to show their support. And also, as it was suggested by Tyler, I think that it's it should be a litmus test. It should be considered sort of inappropriate or unacceptable, rather, for a candidate to not support Assange and to not support the First Amendment, free speech and the free press. So I think it's great. And I think that we need to embrace people who maybe at one time didn't have great views on Assange or were just misinformed. Those people, we need to embrace them when they finally realize and see the light and see that they were mistaken. And so I think it's great. There is so much support for Assange. I always want to highlight this. I mean, it just recently, a coalition of 25 organizations, this includes Reporters Without Borders, Amnesty International, the ACLU, Human Rights Watch, PEN America, and so many others. 25 organizations are calling for the prosecution of Assange to end and for the Biden administration to drop this case and for Assange to be freed. So this is, the support for him is is growing and it's very significant. And we see so many people, members of parliament throughout, you know, governments ar around the world who are urging for his immediate release. No, and, and let's just, in lieu of our previous discussion, uh, Tyler, I would put this on the, the new contract for America I'm suggesting. I would, I would make it an issue where they say, I support Julian Assange, because I agree with both of you, I think it's a fundamental issue. I think if you get Assange wrong, you either haven't looked into it or you're just on the wrong side of issues. There we go. So Taylor, let's talk about William Engel and, and explain who he is. Yes, thank you for bringing this up. It's, you know, when we talk about the Assange case, we often talk about, you know, a global precedent that could be set and how the United States prosecuting a journalist for publishing is, is really an attack on our fundamental freedoms and human rights, and it empowers other governments to act in a very authoritarian way. And so we're seeing that happen right now with Dutch activist Willem Engel. He is also a biopharmacist and a dancer and dance instructor. And again, he is Dutch, and he is someone who has been upholding and fighting for human rights and bodily integrity and our fundamental freedoms for the past two years, as we saw our freedoms just being taken from us by our governments in the name of so-called public health. And Willem is a peaceful man. I am honored and have the pleasure of, of knowing him uh, not too well, but I've interviewed him twice now. And this is someone who is really a, a true freedom fighter and someone who cares about human rights. And unfortunately, he has been the enemy of uh, the Dutch government because he's been challenging them for their draconian restrictions and their assaults on human rights and for their uh, brutality on the public and for just, again, infringing on people's rights. So Willem Engel, uh, 
has actually sued the Dutch government for the various vaccine mandates, other restrictions, and he's been very vocally challenging uh, the various measures over the past two years, as I said. And because he was doing this, like other dissidents, uh, he was unfortunately arrested just recently. And he was arrested, actually, for posting inflammatory, or that's what they're saying, inflammatory messages about COVID-19 on social media. He went to prison for two weeks for this. Fortunately, he was released under the condition that he doesn't post on social media again uh, about COVID or just in general, rather. And of course, this is a very vague condition because it raises many questions as to what exactly is social media. But anyways, he you know, agreed to this condition. He was released. And then just a few days later, he was arrested on April 3rd again. And this arrest was actually a very peculiar because you could say it was somewhat illegal because the officers did not identify themselves, which according to Dutch law, they have to do so. But anyways, this man was arrested again, but he was arrested literally because he did an interview with a news organization which was posted to YouTube, I believe. And so that was considered a violation of uh, this order. But Willem never posted anything on social media. The point is here is that they are targeting this man. They are targeting him through the judicial system by imprisoning him. And this is someone who has been again, fighting for human rights and for people's freedom. And he's a very powerful speaker. And I, as I said, I interviewed him twice and each time I was deeply moved. It's he's, his interview with me was in fact, I think probably one of the most inspirational interviews that I have ever had. And people in the Dutch government do not want him speaking out. And so he is on social media right now. And I would encourage everybody, if you are on social media, to go uh, follow him, keep up to date with him. His name is Willem Engel. And he is someone who is, who is really a worthy of our support. And also this ban uh, that he had on social media goes against the Constitution and international treaties, uh, argues an attorney, his name is actually Willem Jebink, but there are lawyers and people within the Dutch government who are, are, are sort of seeing that this was a, a great overreach on his rights. But again, this is just a, sadly, a global precedent that we're seeing being set here because of, you know, the attacks on Assange and others like him. Now, I got to say, too, what you described his bio, uh, his biography, scientist dance instructor. That's the most Dutch biography I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> and the reason I say that <laughs> is a friend of mine who was Dutch years ago, he described the Dutch very well. He said, we're like the Germans without a sick. <laughs> that, that is yeah. very accurate because they're, they're, the Dutch like, you know, they're very businesslike and like, you know, they, they, they make the trains run on time and so on. But you know, Weasley Galaire, so they like a party. So dance instructor scientist is an amazing bio. Tyler, are you familiar with this story? Kit, Tyler Nixon. I'm here. I, I actually would just like to say that I, it shouldn't go without saying uh, when you uh, experience, get to be on with 
a journalist like Taylor that, you know, it takes courage and courage is contagious, which I think, you know, when uh, folks like Taylor step up, you know, there's a risk to even defending someone like Julian Assange. And, you know, for anyone who puts themselves out there and comes to his defense, uh, particularly journalists, I mean, you risk lots of uh, consequences for that and, you know, negative consequences. And I think, uh, it, you know, it's worth noting the courage of someone like Taylor and, and you know, the principles that are, uh, the, you know, principled integrity uh, of someone like this. And, and we need more uh, Taylor Hudaks. Thank you. No, I agree completely. When people are targeted by the state, when people who are working very hard to uphold human rights and to inform the public and to be, you know, working on behalf of, of the people at a time when the government is really infringing on people's rights and uh, abilities to freely express themselves, I think that journalists have a duty and an obligation to support those people and to share their stories and to bring their stories to light. So that's why I, I choose to do this type of coverage because again, first and foremost, my duty is to the public, not any governments. And it's also not to be uh, well-liked or revered necessarily. My, my duty is to the public and I'm always going to fight for people like Willem Engel, like Julian Assange and others who really are people who have been unfairly targeted by governments because of their willingness, bravery, and courage to work on behalf of the people. Well, you are very well like here. And, and that's why when Taylor Hudak says, this is a story worth focusing on, as she's saying with the William Engel story, people should pay attention to that. Taylor knows what she's talking about. And Taylor, where can people read? Have you written about this? Where can people find what you've read about this? Yes. So I have been following this case. It's a little bit difficult because it is a case taking place in the Netherlands. So it's all in Dutch. But I just interviewed Willem earlier today. This is a fantastic interview because of him. And I interviewed him about a year ago. You could find that material at thelastamericanvagabond.com. Again, that's thelastamericanvagabond.com. His name is Willem Engel. And then also to Please continue to support Julian Assange as well. You can donate to the Don't Extradite Assange campaign and also the crowd justice campaign set up by his fiance or well, wife now, actually, uh, Stella Morris or Stella Assange. So uh, please, everybody listening right now, do your part. I'm asking you to. It's really worth it. This is a fight for all of us, not just these two men. It's for everybody's freedoms in public, in the public's right to know. Taylor Hudak. Great appearance, as always. Tyler Nixon, great guest co-hosting. Thanks for joining us. And to all of our callers today, thanks for calling in the show. Also, thanks to Mark Akorian from Center for Immigration Studies in the first hour. Great week. We will be back next week, censorship willing, on The Backstory. 